Well, good morning. Let me say while you're doing it, thank you for your giving, your support of Christian life. And um, I would also, um, I, I, got, I was able to get the, the uh, uh, thank you in the bulletin this week. Thank you for your kindness to us on Pastor's Day. It means so very, very much. Thank you, sir. And one other thank you. Thank you for praying for the pastors and elders as we were on our annual uh, retreat this last week. It's a time when we pray, a uh, time when we plan, time when we review, do the budget, eat more than any normal person should. It's, uh, it's a great time. And we were very much aware of your prayers. And I feel like this is... Um, it just continues to astound me the way God meets us and the way the uh, leadership of this church that um, uh, have take time to come together is just su such, a, such a blessing. Thank you. We were very mindful of your prayers. Now, Father, as we get back to the story of King David, we want to, we want to show him walking out of the wilderness today. We want to thank you because David got out of the wilderness that we can get out of the wilderness too. Now we want to thank you, Father, because this isn't on our radar usually. We want to thank you for every day in the wilderness. Three amens, Lord, that's good. We're making progress. Thank you for every day, Lord, in the wilderness. Because it's there we learn the most valuable lesson of life that man does not live by bread alone, but by the word, the touch, the power of God upon his life. Thank you that you're teaching us that if we sow to the flesh, we'll reap fleshly things. But if we sow to the spirit, we'll reap spiritual things. Thank you for teaching us, Lord, even when we're slow to learn. Thank you for persisting to teach us, Lord, even when we don't like what we're being taught. Thank you for the model and the, and the uh, victories you gave David so that we can know the same is available for us. Help us as we look at this last section of Scripture, uh, or, or of the story, not of Scripture, but last section of the story um, that we call David's beginnings. We give you praise and thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's been about a dozen years since we met David as far as the Bible story goes. We met him as best we can tell looking at the rabbinical writings, looking at the limited um, information that we have. David was a man in his late teens, uh, possibly as early as his mid-teens when we met him. Now he is 30 years old or is about to turn 30. So we've seen at least a dozen years transpire. We have seen David face test after test after test. Some of them he passed beautifully. Some of them he failed miserably. But the thing about David is that every time he learned, uh, or excuse me, every time he passed or failed, he always learned something that equipped him for the next step. We see David making the mistake of not consulting God and he made the worst moves of his life. And the next time we see him, he remembers those mistakes and he does just the opposite. 
he does almost overkill on seeking the will of God. And so we're going to talk today about the moment when everything changes. You say, Pastor, well, that's what I've been waiting for. How, when does that come? I, I don't know. It's different in every situation. It's different in every life. It's not a predictable um, uh, pattern necessarily, unless you look at it in a really broad kind of a meta view. It, it's, it's, it's hard to detect because what God does for one, he may not do the same way for another. Now we say that God's no respecter of persons. What he does for one, he'll do for another. That's not true at all. It, it is true that God's not a respecter of persons, but what that scripture means in its core heart value is that God deals with us by the same principles. You, you can't slip through the back door with God. You, your standing doesn't give you special grace with God to bypass what everybody else has to go through. It, it means that God is, is not doing anything in your life or mine because of our lives. It's all by grace. Now, some of us, by the way we live, are more disposed to grace. Some of us have to take another lap around the mountain, but God does it for his glory from his initiative because of his love. And um, we, we need to understand that God doesn't promise to deal with us the same way unless it has to do with those eternal principles. But let's read the story at the end of the lesson today. We're doing like those great television writers. We're, we're about to show you something and then we're gonna go back and say months earlier. Okay, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now, just to set this in context for you, Ziklag was a city uh, on the uh, out, outlying areas of Philistia where David was given to live with his 600 mighty men and their families. David was the worst enemy that Philistia had ever since the days of Goliath. Israel was making progress against the nations around them, but the strong sticking point was Philistia because they had weapons of iron. They would not even allow Israel to possess iron tools or learn how to sharpen what tools they had. They dominated the, the area. And at one time, David was the, was the rank, bitter enemy of Philistia. But David has been living a double life and Philistia has accepted him into their ranks. Not because they now love David, but because they said it's better to own him than fight him. So they give him a city and say, David, if you'll live among us, you can be us and we won't pursue you like King Saul is doing. And they gave him the city of Ziklag and um, that's where their families lived while they were out raiding. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and taken captive the women and everyone else in it, young and old. They killed none of them but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziglag, now this is their home, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Imagine how you'd feel. You came home from work one day and everything is destroyed and everybody's gone. So David and his men wept aloud till they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been uh, captured 
And David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Now this is a first. For all these years, these men came to David out of their need. And then David became a captain to them. And their, their, um, their need of David turned to loyalty to David. And their loyalty to David turned to love for David. But now when everything bottomed out, they were saying, we need to kill David. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Some versions say David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David sent to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And you remember what we said about the ephod last week and the week before? It was associated with the way the Old Testament priests would determine the will of God. God would speak. And God can speak any way he wants to. Even in the book of Acts, before the day of Pentecost, God spoke through the casting of lots. They didn't just say, well, let's just throw dice and see what happens. It, that was the way God had often given direction through um, the Urim and the Thummim, which may have been supernaturally lit stones. It could have been the casting of lots, but they understood that God was so sovereign in their life that, that whenever God gave a, a word through a prophet, they accepted that. But at other times they said, Lord, we're putting this before you. Show us what your will is. And, and I want to tell you, that takes a lot of faith to trust that God is so sovereign in your life that he controls the roll of dice or who draws the, the long straw or the short straw. He said, bring me to Ephod and Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party and will I overtake them? Pursue them, the Lord answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Now today our cast of characters expands a little bit. We're still talking about Saul and David with the king of Philistia, but we're also talking about four armies that are converging on a battlefield, uh, potentially one of the biggest battles in the history of the area. You, you will see for the last time David and Saul today. And I mean, uh, not David and Saul, excuse me. You say, well, the series is being cut short. I meant Saul and Jonathan is what I meant to say. The story in scripture that this covers, if you want to read more detail, it's 1 Samuel 28 to 31. Now let me tell you what happens in these four chapters. In chapter 28, Saul visits the witch of Endor. Saul began his reign in Israel with the spirit of God coming upon him. And it was such a powerful anointing that it became a, a proverb in Israel as Saul also among the prophets. You know, when, and what that means is when something amazing happened, you know, when something amazing happened, the way they would respond to that amazing thing is yes. And Saul's one of the prophets, you know, amazing things were happening, but Saul visits the witch at Endor. We'll try to talk about that in just a moment. He's gone from an anointed prophetic person to a person who compromises and wants the touch of God upon him, wants the blessing of God upon him, wants the endorsement of Samuel. But he begins a slow series of compromises. And basically what he does is he moves from utter dependence on the Lord and humility to, 
to the point that he begins to make judgment decisions on his own, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And I know I say this a lot, but you go to Romans 1, that is the foundation of the fall of man. I will make decisions on what is right and what is wrong. I will make the final determination of what God looks like. And when you begin to do that, you are in a slide into abysmal, um, an abysmal future. And he goes from, I'll share power with God. You know, first of all, all power is God's. Then I'll share power with God. Then he goes to, I can do this in my own strength. And through the prophet Samuel, he learns that the kingdom has been torn from him. That moment, it's, and I know I've talked about it, but it's just such a, a, an, a, an earth-shattering moment. Saul is being told by Samuel, the, the kingdom of God is, or the, the God of heaven is not happy with you. When you were little in your own sight, you were easy to direct. You were easy to speak to. But now you've become mighty in your own eyes. And Saul said, well, will you at least come and make an appearance with me? I want Israel to think you're still with me anyway. And whether he's right or wrong, I don't know. But Samuel caves in, maybe out of the attitude that we should all have to honor the king. And he said, I'll go, but the Lord is not going to go with you. And when, when Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs him and Saul is determined to, um, Samuel's determined to go on his way. Saul grabs his cloak and rips it. And under a moment of prophetic anointing, the prophet looks at him, looks at the garment that he's wearing that has been torn. And he says, as you have torn this, God will tear from your hand the kingdom and will give it to a man that is more worthy than you are. And we see Saul being tormented by demons in the palace or, and I say the palace, it was probably his residence. He lived about three, mi uh, about three miles north of Jerusalem. And David lived about six miles east of Jerusalem. And David began to make that trek, which would have been cutting across seven or eight miles to minister to Saul in his home or in his palace. And he gets deeper and deeper tormented by spirits till the fact, this is what happens. Samuel will not speak to him anymore. And he says, the Lord is not speaking to me anymore. And he goes to a witch that was at Endor. And she recognized that she, she, witches have power. Now it's not God's power and the church is not subject to it. I want to tell you, the church does not recognize it. We will not live under it. We will not walk under curses. But if you don't walk in God's power, the power of a witch is a very powerful thing. And he said, since God's not talking to me, I'm going to go to the witch. And we're going to talk about it in just a moment. But at that point, and you never know where that point is. That's why it is really smart to not be stupid. <laughs> That's why it's really smart to not play games with God, not because he's harsh, but because we're so frail, we're so dependent on him. And at that moment, Saul seems to pass the line. Now, the kingdom's already been taken, but God's allowed this man to rule for 40 years. And God seems to be doing everything he can to allow Saul room to come back. But after a while, 
he just can't come back. He's gone too far. And the visit to the witch at Endor sealed his doom. We'll talk about that in just a moment. In, in chapter 29, David is going to war with Philistia against Israel. Now, we're going to talk about what we think David was doing in just a moment. But God providentially removed David from the battle against Saul. Looking at it in the natural, it, it, the most logical, the most logical thing to do is to take your mightiest general who has 600 trained, ambidextrous, mighty men, take him into battle against your enemy. But God sends a disruption. God sends confusion into the camp of the Philistines and the leaders of the other uh, battalions and uh, of, of the Philistine army said, look, this man is a Jew. We don't want him fighting alongside of us. He'll turn on us. The king says he's proved himself for years with us. He's fought our enemies. Now you and I know, he didn't know, but you and I know because we get to read the book that David would go out, say he was fighting against Israel, but he would fight against the other enemies of Israel. And he, they never figured out what David was doing, but God providentially removes David. We'll talk about why. Chapter 30, Ziklag is ravaged by the Amalekites. David is going on the biggest arguably the biggest battle of his life. <coughs> God providentially sends him back home and he gets there only to find that everything they love has been taken away. Every one they love has been taken away and everything they possess has been taken away. And David reaches the lowest point. David reaches the lowest point of his life at Ziklag. He had to learn that enemies can't be reasoned with and that enemies want you dead. But now he finds that even his friends are now wanting him dead. And not only do his friends want him dead, he can't even say, well, you just have Ziklag. You live here all you want to. I'm taking my wife and kids and we're going out. And you just, you just, he didn't even have the option of doing that. But in chapter 31, something shifts. There's the battle. Saul and Jonathan die. The central truth is that God is able to finish what he has started in your life. God is able to finish what he started in your life. Pastor Corey, could you help me? Something's come up on the screen. And I think if it's a message from God that says preach as long as you want, it wasn't. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That helps me. Um, let's think it over. David now by the time we get to this point in the story, David returns to Gath. You remember that was one of his foolish moves that he made. Year, you know, years earlier, when he's fleeing from Saul, he goes to, to, he leaves the presence of God at Ramah. Then he goes to the next best thing at Nob and he leaves Nob and he goes to Gath and he realizes when he gets there, I've killed the champion of this city. I've killed Goliath and he's got five brothers who live here. This was a bad move. And so David began to act insane because in the culture of that region, anyone that was insane, you never did anything to them to hurt them. You would feed them, but, but you didn't want them around you. So it's common in cities of this era to leave food outside for the insane or the crazy people to eat. You didn't want to mistreat them, but you didn't want them in your midst. And that's what happened to David. David said, how can I get out of here? He says, I know. And he started acting crazy. And instead of killing him, 
which it was what everybody wanted to do. They drove him out of town. And then, he's, then he realizes, I've gone from bad to worst, out of the frying pan, into the fire. And he goes to a place called Adullam, a cave overlooking the valley of Elah. And it's there that God begins to bring people to him. His family comes to him and God begins to restore. David thought he was spiraling down, but in God's eyes, he was spiraling up. But how many of you know when God begins your spiral upward, you don't know you're so disoriented. You're as confused as a termite and a yo-yo. You don't know which way you're going. But this time he returns to Gath and things are different. Before he, he panicked and was basically alone. Now he's a distinguished warrior with a considerable band of seasoned um, uh, fighters. David learned a lesson when you're invited to a gunfight, invite all of your friends, especially your friends who have guns. And so he goes back into Gath and he's going to take up residence with them for well over a year. And it's going to be that tough, bloody time that we talked about last week. Now we know David's about to be crowned king. We know he was 30 years old when he became king. And um, uh, like I said, we don't know that David's age at the beginning of the story. But when we put all of the indicators together, it, it appears that David, um, again, from, from the episode of his anointing to the episode of him being crowned king, is probably... 12 years, 14 years, something like that. But he's been in the wilderness as long as 10 years, but absolutely at least seven years. So it's been a long, hard road for this man. Now, some of the time in the wilderness, he's enduring direct hostility from Saul and other times he's simply hiding and he's out of the reach of Saul. But it's been a long, a long haul. <clears throat> now, let me, let me say this as we begin to, 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 to reach the top of the hill and go down the other side. Loved ones, um, security and stability is often one of the most difficult temptations to overcome. I, I want to say that again. Sometimes the devil tries to just overwhelm you. But sometimes the devil will give you a satisfactory substitution to the, God, to the will of God for your life. David receives his own city, the whole city, a walled city, just the kind of place that a warrior would want to live. He could have easily lived out his days in Ziklag, but sooner or later, whenever God allows us to go to a Ziklag, God stirs us with a remembrance of his destiny for us. See, we, I, I guarantee you, if you haven't been where I'm about to describe now, you will be. But I know what it's like, most of you do, you know what it's like to pursue a destiny and it just seems always that you're a day late and a dollar short, it's just, just out of reach. But you will suddenly find something that's not the destiny, but it's good enough. Well, she's not exactly what I asked for, but she's good enough. This, this career is not exactly what I asked for but it's good enough. This ministry is not what God showed me in that vision, but it's good enough. And you might not even say good enough. You might be saying close enough. And I want to tell you, you think it's rough in the wilderness. You think it's rough being persecuted. 
And, and it very well can be. But loved ones, I want to tell you the most dangerous place for almost every one of the people of God is to get an inheritance that is so close to what God wants for you that you are content to stay there. Events in Israel were transpiring without David's knowledge. And like Joseph being called before Pharaoh, we talked about that last week, David was about to be unexpectedly, violently summoned to the fulfillment of his dreams. <laughs> and boy, I tell you what, sometimes the best thing for us makes us so angry. I'm not trying to be too personal here, but I, I, I happen to have a, a, a pacer. And I'm not supposed to go through certain types of, what do you call it, uh, screening, screening things. Um, they say it's probably wouldn't be a problem. We just don't want to take the test. I want to tell you, I'm, a couple of years ago, last year, I forget when it was, going to the fair, I'm, I'm just dumb and happy. I'm going to pet cows. That's one of the favorite things that I do. Pick out a goat. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going in. And I'm about to go through there and all of a sudden I am so roughly manhandled I thought I am going to have to fight. Somebody is attacking me. Um, kind of hurt my ribs, kind of took the wind out of me and I'm... And it was my little girl. It was my little girl. My little girl! She knocked the breath out of me. She knocked me off balance. I have to hold myself. I think my other kids are holding me so I don't go down. And I'm thinking, she snapped. She's, she's like her mama, and she snapped. She's taking me down. I look at that precious sweetheart, and she says, Dad, you can't go through a metal detector. I said, I know that. You know what? I thought I was, honestly, I thought I was being attacked. But you know what it was? Someone that loved me with all their heart was being sure I went the right way when every instinct was taking me the wrong way. Now, I think they liked it so much they all looked for a chance to tackle me now when I, <laughs> when I go the wrong way. But loving us, I want to tell you, I, I mean, I wasn't mad with her at all to begin with. I just didn't understand. But sometimes you will find that when God brings you to your destiny, do you know what's happening? God, it, it's such a violent trans, transition because God is snatching you. Do you know what Paul said in Philippians 3? He said, I'm pressing after, I'm following God. Why? He said that King James says, so that I might apprehend that for which I've been apprehended. And you say, Hallelujah. I apprehend that for which I'm in, apprehended. What it literally means is, as Paul said, I'm pressing in so that I might grab hold of that thing that grabbed hold of me. So I want to tell you, it scares the pea turkey out of us. But some of the greatest days of your life will be the roughest days of your life because God's grabbing you. And it's not because he's mad. If God was mad at you, you'd be a grease spot. But it's like he's doing several things at once. He's letting you know that his hand is on you. He's letting you know that he loves you. He's letting you know he's going to keep his word. So good news is when you get grabbed unexpectedly by the hand of almighty God. Now here are some pivotal moments. Saul 
was confronted by Samuel one final time. You say, well, I thought Samuel was dead now. That's what makes chapter 28 so spooky. He goes to the witch at Endor and loved ones, let me tell you, when someone is used to hearing supernatural input, whether it's from the pulpit or in their relationship with God, you will be surprised how easily they will gravitate to a false spiritual voice. Once you've started hearing the spirit, you're never going to be, you're ruined for normal life. But sometimes when we don't want to pay the price to go back to what is right, we'll pay the price to get in the neighborhood. We'll pay the price to get in the neighborhood. So he goes to the witch at Endor and the witch understands. We don't have time to go into all the story, but she understands this is Saul. Saul doesn't identify himself. She said, uh, I'm sorry, I used to be a witch. Uh, I know that's what my tax form has under occupation. But that was a few years ago because Saul has outlined all witchcraft in Israel. And Saul and his leaders assure her, probably with a monetary gift, as sure as the Lord lives, no harm will come to you for, for giving our master the information that he needs. And she begins, she says, okay, she has familiar spirit that, and what that, you know, someone with familiar spirits, what that means is they traffic, they're familiar with evil spirits. Um, I, I want to, I want to encourage you, do not go to the fortune tellers. Do not go to the palm readers. Do not go to that realm of, of society or the spiritual realm because even though it is false, the power is real. And demon, you say, well, I, you know, pastor, I don't, I don't know if it's false. I've been to a palm reader. They told me stuff nobody else could know. Demons know. Demons know. And uh, it's amazing what we call spiritual meaning good when it's spiritual meaning bad. So she goes through a routine. She calls up the spirit. Now, this woman was very comfortable. She was popular enough and successful enough that Saul, in a land where it was forbidden, knew where to get the, that, that he wanted. And what happens is what happened every time she performed a service for years. It was nothing out of the ordinary except for one thing. She was terrorized. You got to understand, here's a woman that lives with demons, but she sees, quote, a demon and she's terrorized. And the reason is because something was happening that had never happened to her before. God was interrupting the ritual of the witch of Endor and something was about to happen that Bible scholars just squirm under. They do, they do everything they can to explain away what I'm about to say. She said, I see an old man coming. And she described in terror the old man and Saul's heart drops. It is Samuel. Now you say, Pastor, God, God tells us we're not to communicate with the dead. Right. You know, but he's already in this forbidden zone. And God sends Samuel back to her, uh, to him rather. And the reason I know it was Samuel is that because this, if it had just been a demonic impersonation, she would have masterfully pulled it off. 
But Samuel comes back. You say, well, God wouldn't send back the dead. God's against that. God is against us pursuing the dead. But God can send back the dead anytime he wants to. He did it with Moses and Elijah during the ministry of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, you, you see, God, God can do what he wants to do, and this is what he did in regard to Samuel. He sent Samuel back to Saul. Samuel made his last prophecy over Saul, and he said, this time tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, meaning you'll be in the grave, you'll be dead and this is not a place where we get into uh, the afterlife, Old Testament, New Testament. We, Samuel was simply saying, you will be dead this time tomorrow. And that's exactly what happened. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, David is planning to go into battle with Philistia. Saul is getting ready for battle the night before, and he prepares by going to a witch. It was going to this witch... Saul crossed the line. Across the valley, over the hill, David was planning to go into battle with Philistia. But the commanders, those that were fellow commanders with David, revolted. King Achish was forced to send David home. And, and they said, we will not fight with him. He says, he's never been a problem to us. David, I'm for you. I'm trying to defend you here. He's never been a problem to us. The fact of the matter is, David had been a problem for years. King Achish just didn't know it. And the commander said, if you want to go into war, king, we're your subjects. But if you're going into battle tomorrow with Israel, you leave him here or we won't go. So he sends David home. Now, you say... What was going on in David's mind? Well, we don't always know. We don't know if this was a daring infiltration planned by David. You know, we don't know if David said, you know, I've, I've won against Felicia for years by deception. I will get into their ranks. And just as the, the other commanders feared, in the height of the battle, I will have them raise the flag of Israel and the standard of King Saul. And we will be, a, a, you know, a, a fifth column in the background, just mowing them down left and right. We will have deceived them. We don't know if David was doing that. And maybe David was thinking, if we can do something like that, I will win back Saul's approval. We don't know what was in his mind, but we do know what was in God's mind. You guys still with me? God was saying, I'm about to bring to pass my judgment on Saul, and I do not want David anywhere near Saul when I bring my judgment. People like Nabal had always said, well, David's just, he's just a rebellious servant. He'd kill Saul if he had the chance. David had opportunity on more than once to kill Saul, but God was gracious and would not let him. He spoke to his heart and David was not able to get the blood of Saul on his hands because of the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit. Abigail understood what God was doing enough to say, David, don't get innocent blood on your hands because if you do, that will hinder what God wants to do through you. And I tell you what was happening when David was armed, ready for battle, 600 men just saying, David, give us a word. We'll start to fight right here and it won't be with Israel. 
David was overwhelmingly outnumbered and he's forced to go back home and to miss the battle. What David did not know is that God was about to bring judgment on his enemies and God said, the way I bring judgment on your enemies, David, is to be sure you are nowhere around because I don't want your hands bloody. I can handle your enemies without you even getting in the fray. David's back, going back, he's angry. And you think, well, let's go home and we'll live to fight another day. But God was about to do one more thing. Are you ready for this? Just before you find your destiny and just when everything is frustrating you with anger, you'll find that what God's doing is he's taking your comfort zone away. David got back. He said, well, at least we're going to a walled city. At least we'll be protected. And from miles away, probably judging from the terrain of that land, probably from six to eight miles away, he could see smoke rising from his home city. And you, I can tell his mind wandering, you know, what, what has happened? What's, you know, this is not right. This is not a campfire. This is, this is not the destruction of the garbage heap. There was always a fire going up from a city because of the destruction of garbage. But he said, this isn't the garbage heap. He, he says, he says this, this is the, uh, the burning of a city. And I can imagine David and his men riding at full gallop, trying to get back. And uh, that may explain why they don't go out immediately. They were, they were totally broken. Their animals were on the verge of being ridden to death. And David gets there and finds out that the worst imaginable thing has happened. My loved ones have been taken. The things that God has given us is taken away. That's nothing compared to the loved ones, but it just seems like there's nothing left. And on top of that, the men said, you know, they forgot all of those years of David taking them when they were in debt and distressed and discontented. You know, so many times, you know, being, being a king is sort of like being a college football coach. Doesn't matter what you've done in recent years. What did you do last week? And they took a beating on that Saturday when they got back to Ziklag or whatever day it was. And they wanted to kill David. And David, if he had done what he had done years ago, he would have immediately run. But David hunkers down. That's a good spiritual word. It comes from the Greek word hunkero. <laughs> I'm kidding. Those of, you, those of you at CIU said, they didn't give us that in vocabulary. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Just remember hunkero. <laughs> David hunkered down and he said, I've got to think and I've got to pray. I've got to remember what God said I've got to remember what God does. I'm not in a position to do anything until I've taken those steps. I've got to wait. And he does that. He waits. Then under the direction of the Lord, David retaliated and recovered everything that was lost. Nobody had been killed. Nobody had been raped. Nobody had been molested. None of the property had been sold. David recovers everything. Now, the next scene over in the valley, Saul and three of his sons die in battle. 
and all of this happens, David was not allowed to even pull his sword from its sheath in regard to Saul. Now, what do we learn from this? What are our lessons that we, that we walk away from here with today? Let me give you four of them and I'll give them to you as quickly as I can. Here's number one. It's letter A, I think, on your outline. Before God's best comes due, a counterfeit option may present itself. And loved ones, this is the most precarious place in your journey. It's not tough to choose between right and wrong. I mean, it might be tough, but you know right from wrong. It's not the tough thing to choose from evil and righteous. It's the toughest point in your life when something that looks nearly as good as God's will presents itself. This is what Abraham and Sarah faced. Lord, you promised us a son. And Lord, I, I know you're busy running the universe and everything. But if you haven't noticed, we are already on social security. We're already signed up for Medicaid or Medicare and and we still don't have a son. So what we need to do is we need to help you. And they produced an Ishmael. And lovers, I want to tell you, we think of Ishmael as, oh, that's Ishmael, but this is Isaac. You love your children. And you love them whether they are, they are an Ishmael or they are an Isaac. Now, Sarah had an attitude and a half. We've been talking about that on Wednesday nights. By the way, be here this Wednesday. We start a new series um, intercession and spiritual warfare in the days ahead. So we start a new series this Wednesday. But we've been talking about uh, the life of Abraham. Sarah wanted to get rid of, of Ishmael. The whole thing was her idea. But she wanted to get rid of Ishmael. But you know what God said? When, when, when God was saying, look, I'm going to keep my promise to you. You know what, what Abraham's response was? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. You know what he just did? God said, I'm going to give you the son of your dreams. I'm going to give you the son that I promised to you when you were 75 years old. He's now right at 100. And what was his response? Lord, thanks. I know we got a little ahead of the game with Ishmael and he's a good boy, but I know you got, you got a destiny coming here. You know what? No, he threw himself on the ground and this is what he said. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Loved ones, sometimes the substitute that is presenting itself to you looks so palatable that you will beg God to let you keep the substitute. And we love our Ishmael so, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And we can actually um, uh, end up stopping short in relationships, careers, and ministries. And can I tell you what? you need to also be aware of whenever we put our roots down in Ziklag, instead of knowing that it's a temporary stop, God is easily able to raise up Amalekites to take it away and put life back in perspective. Now I know that sound, you say, Oh, that's harsh. I don't like a God like that. No, you like a God like that. You just don't like God doing things the way he does them. You see, we, we settle for an Ishmael instead of receiving the Isaac. We settle for where we are because it just looks like it's just going to be more fighting to get what God promised. And God said, I understand. I understand. This is a nice, comfortable, cozy place. So he raises up Amalekites. He raises up bankruptcy. He raises up whatever. 
You say, well, God would never do anything bad. God would, I know God is good and everything he does is good, but we got to understand what good means. I'd rather be tackled and lose my breath than walk somewhere that could be dangerous. We, we, have, we have somehow been deluded into thinking that we are the determiners of what's good. Therefore, we can determine if what God's doing is good. And we build whole theologies on God never does anything unpleasant and God never does anything that we think is bad. God, you know, God never sends us through tough times. And there's really only one problem with that. And that is that it's totally wrong. Other than that, it's okay. I want to tell you something, loved ones. It's better for God to burn your Ziklag to the ground. It's better for God to raise up the Amalekites to get you in fighting mode. It's better that God, as he spoke to Jeremiah, it's better that God anoint your enemy called Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. It's better that God raises up an enemy and sets them in victorious array against you if that's what it takes to bring you to your senses. I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather be struck by lightning right now than walk into a path of rebellion that would separate me from God. And I say with great confidence what the psalmist said, Psalm 119, God is good and everything he does is good. That's why when the hand of God comes against you, if your attitude's right, you say, oh, thank you, may I have another? <laughs> now, I understand that I need to make about a half dozen qualifying statements. I don't have time to do that today. But I've, I mean, I've been preaching here 25 years. I've covered them all. So understand that God will raise up um, Amalekites if necessary because the counterfeit is not where we want to stop. Here's number two, the destiny of Saul, whenever God's dealing with us, don't be frustrated and don't be confused because the destiny of Saul must be resolved as well. See, the whole world doesn't depend around us. God is working on so many levels and, and God loves us so much. You know, that's the amazing thing about God's love. His love for us is so absolutely unstoppable and so absolutely amazing. When you really begin to focus on the love of God, you are convinced that you truly are his favorite. I mean, you, you know that's not true theologically, but I look at you, as far as I'm concerned, y'all are all in a battle for second. I mean, I just know I'm his favorite. But you know what? Every one of us ought to be feeling that way. Because God's love is so amazing. See, we think of love, we got so much. I remember when we had adopted Jeremy and and we're told we were going to have another child after, after several years. My, my honest to goodness fear. I mean, I know this sounds horrible, but I just, I just didn't know. I love Jeremy so much. I, I, I mean, he was my world and still is. And I love Jeremy so much. I thought, how, how do I divide this love equally between two boys? It wasn't that I thought Joey would not be loved. 
I just didn't know how to divide my love. He's, he's my world. And now here's somebody else that's also got to be my world. And I said, Lord, I don't even know how to begin to do this. And you know what I found out when Joey popped out and was born, I looked at him. You know what I realized? I'd been trying to figure out how to divide my love. And what had just happened is it just multiplied. It just doubled. And, and that's the nature of God's love toward us. Only it's perfect. But we've got to understand that God is also working in other lives. Um, you say, well, that's not fair. If he loves me, he needs to, he needs to take care of me. He is, but God has the amazing ability to take care of you and deal with Saul and take care of everything else all at once, but you've got to let him do it. This is what happened to Abraham. He's an example of this principle in Genesis 15. The, God says, I'm giving you all this land and your descendants are going to go into the land, but they're going to be here for about 400 years. Listen to this. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That, 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 there's only one sentence that deals with that. But when we, by the time we get through the writings of Moses, we understand what's happened. God was saying, this is your land. Your children are going to inherit it. But I need to send them out for a while before I bring them in because everybody's cup of iniquity is full except the Amorites. He, he, you know, the, the children of Israel didn't just go in and just take land. That was the judgment of God on the sin of those nations. And God said, I can't let you come into the land yet. I can't give you the land yet because the Amorites still have a chance. The Amorites have not passed the point of no return like the other nations have. Now God knew that they would. But God says, you've got to let me work out what I've got to work out with the Amorites before you can come into the land. And God was saying to David, David, I know you've been in the wilderness a long time. God is saying to me and you, I know you've been on hold for a long time, but I've got to work out all the details. And it's not that God's saying, give me a chance to figure this out. God is working with equal love to your enemies. And we've got to hold on to the bigger purpose. Well, that's not popular. Let's go on. We've got to understand that, uh, in other words, what, the way, what Jesus taught is that tares must mature before the wheat is separated. Tares must also mature before the wheat is separated. This is the way he works with the remnant. Number three, expect a final desperate attack from hell just before your breakthrough. You remember when Israel went into battle, they were treating the ark of God like a rabbit's foot, but they were shouting. They were excited. We're going into battle with the ark of the covenant. And when the Philistines heard that, they were terrified. And this is what they said. Oh, men of Philistia, fight like you've never fought before. Be brave, be strong. Because if we don't win this battle, the Israelites will overwhelm us. Do you realize that hell sometimes talks a better game than we do? And so don't be surprised for hell to launch a desperate attack just before your breakthrough. And then here's where we're going to wrap it up in just a, a couple of minutes we got left. And I'm just going to give them to you quickly. While waiting on your destiny, you got to remember three principles. These three principles are critical. Number one. Do what you have to do during this wilderness experience to be functional and productive. 
That means provide for, for uh, those you love. That, that's a typo for, um, um, uh, no, I didn't. I, I, I skipped a line. I take it back. Um, provide for and love your family. Provide for and love your family and find a way to make life work. Serve your way out of the difficulty. Don't expect others to do your part for you. Now, we talked about that last week. I don't need to stay there. But while you're waiting for your destiny, don't talk about what the church owes me. Don't talk about what the government owes me. Don't talk about what my wife owes me or my husband owes me. They may all owe you. But the fact of the matter is quit waiting for some entitlement to fall into your lap to fulfill your destiny. You serve your way out of that period of waiting. And here's number two. Try not to make mistakes that will damage your future. David's frustration level was high when Nabal offended him. He was going to kill Nabal, but Abigail tells him, David, don't do this. It'll put blood on your hands. This was decades ago. It was not in this church or not connected to anybody in this church. But there was a couple that was going through just the fight of their life, a young family in their 30s. The husband had committed adultery and he was wrong. There was no excuse for it. But I felt like they really loved each other and I felt like we could work through this. I felt like we could. And I want to tell you, it's always difficult. It's always difficult. Um, that's why even in the Old Testament economy, when, when adultery occurred, that was grounds for divorce. I mean, God understood. When he described the sin of Israel against him, it was called adultery. But we were working through it and I thought, I think we can get through this. I really do. I, I told the couple, I said, I think we can get through this. She was so devastated and rightly so. He was so broken. He said it was just stupid. He said it was, I just followed lust. Everybody was saying the right thing. And I said, let's, let's meet again. Uh, she missed the appointment, missed the next appointment, said she was busy. Finally called her. I said, I think we need to talk. I said, I think something's wrong. I said, I think we're right on the edge of a breakthrough and um, I, I just need to know what's going on. She said, I just needed time. I said, I understand, time to think. She said, no time, time to get vengeance. I, I said, I don't understand. I thought you were willing to forgive. She said, I am as soon as I get vengeance. And to make a long story short, she went out, seduced her husband's best friend slept with him several times and did other things that I, it's not even proper pulpit talk. She said, I'm ready, I'm ready to reconcile now, but I want him to know just how much he hurt me. I looked at her, I said, you know what you've done? She said, yeah, I got revenge. I said, you have just probably made sure that restoration can never take place. Well, what I did wasn't any worse than what he did. And I said, well, number one, that's debatable. But even if it's true, you just created a layer that I don't know if we can ever get through. And I want to tell you, a victory that was almost won turned into a battle for another three years. And eventually they did get back together. But I want to tell you, sometimes when we act in the flesh, we, we absolutely prohibit what God wants to do in us. At the, very, at the very least, we postpone it a long time. So try not to make mistakes that will damage your future. And here's the last thing. Keep your focus on who God is, 
on what he has done and what he's able to do. That's what it meant when it said David encouraged himself in the Lord. Okay, now it's time, it's time for us to quit. This is how I want us to end the service today. Um, there are many of us here that feel that we're walking in our destiny and God is good. And this is, today is just an amen day for you. Yeah, pastor, that's what I learned. I'm celebrating. But there are others of you here. You say, pastor, I've been whipped. I've been kicked in the head year after year after year. But during these six weeks with David, I'm beginning to understand God's bringing me out. I'm beginning to understand what this dark place has been all about. And God's about to bring me in a, into a place of destiny and fulfillment. And I, I, you know what I realized, Pastor? I realized I am right there with David. David had no idea that at his lowest moment in Ziklag, that, that was his last battle before coming king. You just one step away from the throne. And Pastor, I don't want to blow it. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to be so close and then turn and walk away. So I want God to anoint me to finish. I want God to give me an anointing to break through. I want God to give me a touch that will enable me to cross the line. And loved ones, I'm going to tell you, we're, we're there as a church. You're there, some of you as a family or as individuals. I, 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 don't, I don't know where you are individually, but wherever you are, there is a spirit of... Uh, the Hebrew words translated breaker, breaker or breaking forth. And it was a common thing in the Old Testament when, when someone was about to win a battle <coughs> or someone was about to change their, their destiny. The idea was the idea of being a breaker. You break through, you tear through, you push through. And I want to encourage you today, whatever you feel is keeping you. Some of you have a veil between you where you are in your destiny that's so thin. You can see the other side. You can see the other side. You say, but pastor, my, my, my life is so screwed up right now. It's just so screwed up. Well, have you ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? One of the children commits a sin that just brings everything down brings everything down. And the, the, the witch has a control over Narnia. Things will never be right, ever be right again. She says, I by right control the land I will never let go. But Aslan, the lion, steps in and he talks to her and they strike a deal. And you know what the bottom line is? Aslan says, your magic is powerful, but there's a deeper magic. There's a deeper magic. To make a long story short, Aslan, like Jesus, sacrifices himself for the children, and the witch is delighted. The witch is delighted because she, you know, she, she lets the kids go, but she's destroyed Aslan. But strange things begin to happen. Aslan's bound on the altar, he's dead, he's been shaved, cruelly treated. And what begins is a little small, like little mice crawl up and start chewing on the ropes. Things begin to happen and the kids become aware of something and it's explained in a page or two. The witch has magic, but Aslan has a deeper magic. Aslan, you know the story, comes back to life, 
full redemption for the children, defeats the witch. Loved ones, some of you right now, you're laying on a rock saying, I've just blown it. And you don't even have uh, the presence of mind to see those little mice that are come chewing away the ropes that have you bound. You say, don't try to encourage me. Don't try to, li- don't try to bless me. Don't try to lift me up. It's too little, too late. Well, that's the way most mice look. Too little, too late. But I want to tell you, you want to know what the sound of victory is? It's, and sometimes it's inelegant. Is it? I want to tell you, there's a deeper magic at work in your life. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, you know, Narnia language when I say a deeper magic. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything you could ask or think. You're about to leave Ziklag. You're about to recover everything that the enemy has used to hold you hostage. And comb your hair because you're about to get a crown. Next week, we're going to talk about David coming to the throne and his first acts as king. But what I want to ask you to do is just when we give the altar call in just a moment, I just want you to come and stand and say, Lord, I'm here. I'm reporting for my destiny. I'm I'm reporting for deliverance. I'm reporting for victory. And we're going to have the ministry team just come and pray for you. Would you stand with me, please?